Open your Bibles to Psalm 39. Psalm 39, and we will be studying verse 4 today. As you are opening your Bibles, I want to read to you the law of this land. 29 December 2020, government notice. I'll just read sections. All social gatherings, including faith-based gatherings, are prohibited for two weeks. Section 6 of the same page. Gatherings at cinemas and theaters are limited to 50 persons. Section 7 of the same page. Gatherings at casinos are limited to 50 persons. Section 8 of the same page. Gatherings at museums, galleries, libraries, and archives are limited to 50 persons. Section 15 of the next page. Gatherings at the following places are allowed. Next page. Supermarkets, shops, grocery stores, produce markets, pharmacies, and other businesses. Next section. Gatherings at auctions are allowed. Next section. Sporting activities, including both professional and non-professional matches, by recognized sporting bodies, are allowed, etc., etc. We are gathering this morning in violation of the law of this land. But before they killed the Lord Jesus Christ, Pilate asked, Shall I crucify your king? And the Jews shouted, the Bible says, we have no king but Caesar. Some today will shout that we have no king but Ramaphosa. But I do have another king. We are gathered here this morning in in the best we can to obey the protocols We will do our best to follow whatever laws we can. But we will not abide by the law when the law says you cannot preach the Bible. This is not the first time this has happened in history. And we are not the only assembly that is doing this. In fact, there are many, many assemblies around the world and in different countries who are meeting against the law specifically Laws that have to do with health. But if you go back to another time when Ulrich Zwingli was alive in Switzerland. He left Germany where he was preaching because there was persecution and they threatened to arrest him. But then while he was gone, a plague came to the city. Can I remind you that a plague... In history is a time when there are piles of bodies. Because they cannot dig graves fast enough. I don't think we have seen anything like piles of bodies. Though every death is of course tragic and sad. The 200 people who have been murdered every day by abortion is very sad. But we hear nothing about this. Ulrich Zwingli 
came back to Germany in the middle of the plague in order to strengthen the Christians, even though he could be arrested by the government simply for preaching the gospel, and he could be killed because of the plague. He returned in defiance of the government law and against all common sense for health protocols. Oleg Zingli got the disease and suffered for months. God spared him. And he said, I made the right choice. Richard Baxter, 100 years later, not in Germany now, but in England. Richard Baxter preached during the plague that came on England. Again, plagues in those times are times when so many people die. You pile their bodies in the street. Susan Bauer records that during the bubonic plague in England, people would get sick in the morning and die before the evening. There was hardly a home where someone had not died. Not been affected, but not died. The death rate during Ulrich Zingli, whom I just mentioned, was 25%. We have health professionals here who can tell us the death percentage of the current pandemic. I don't think it's reached one out of four. Richard Baxter preached during the plague and evangelized during the plague. And his reason was, sin is more deadly. And if you have the plague, then you of all people need the gospel. 200 years later, Charles Spurgeon went to visit people during another plague. Not nearly as dangerous as the plague under Baxter or Zwingli. But in the 1800s, Charles Spurgeon went to visit during the plague in London again. A history book that I read of London said, I'm not sure why London is called one of the greatest cities in the world. It actually has had more instances of plague and fire and natural disaster than almost any city, major city in the world. Charles Spurgeon went out again into the homes of people with the plague putting himself in danger. And he said the same thing. Better I die giving them the gospel than they die without it. We do not want to be either foolish or disobedient to the government. But we do not want to say with those Jews, we have no king but Caesar. We do have a king. And his name is not Ramaphosa or Trump. His name is not Mandela or Mugabe. His name is Jesus. And he simply commands us, as we will study in depth tonight, he commands us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He commands us to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to teach those people all the things that he commanded. And I'm going to do that And I trust that we will do that. And I rejoice that you are gathering with us today. One disclaimer before we go on. The words that I've just said do not mean that every church in every situation must do what we have done. There are some churches with a very high risk population There are some churches with immature believers. 
There are some churches with a divided eldership or leadership. I am not saying that every church should do what Antioch Bible Church has done, Grace Community Church has done, or Grace Bible Church has done. I am saying that this is right for us. And if you think it is also biblical and godly, then encourage other pastors to do it. But we should not fight about whether the church meets. I'm going to meet, and if the police come in, I will gladly, there will be no fight. I'll say, gentlemen, can you wait till the end of the service? If they can't, I will gladly let them take me. It would be my honor. In fact, it's a dishonor that I've made it through 42 years without going to prison for Christ. Psalm 39 verse 4 is our text. And it bears directly on the new year and the new law. O Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. David is praying this prayer. We don't know when it was written, but we do know that Jeduthun was one of the temple song ministers who worked with David after he was king, maybe at 50 years old. Perhaps this song was written when he was running from Saul as a 30-year-old man. Perhaps this song was written as a 60-year-old man when he was running from his son Absalom. But we do know David was in trouble when he wrote this and he was reflecting on a hard life. And when there are wicked people all around him, he says in verse 1, Oh God, help me not to shout at them. Help me not to take out my anger at those people. That's verse 1. They're doing wrong, but I don't want to speak to them about their wrong. I don't want to come out in anger. Verse 2, I was silent. I couldn't speak. I was broken in verse 3. I pondered, what should I say? These people are wicked and unjust, and I'm suffering because of them. What should I do? And that brings us to his prayer. Verses 4 down to verse 13 are a prayer. We sometimes miss the prayers in the book of Psalms. But Psalms is full of prayers. And this psalm has a prayer. Look in verse 4 down to verse 13. What's the first word of verse 4? Lord, or O Lord, if you have the ESV. O Lord, he's talking to God. Look down in verse 13. O spare me, O deliver me, O turn away your gaze from me. He's praying. Verses 4 and verse 13 are the prayer that this man makes. And this is a prayer of perspective. You could call the message today a prayer for perspective in 2020. I'm sorry, 2021. Or you could call it how short is life. Let's look today at several points from verse 4. First of all, I would draw your attention to this. Man 
is particularly weak and passing. Do you see that in verse 4? O Lord, make me know my what? What does he want to know? What is the subject that he wants to study? Teach me about my end. Who wants to study their end? Everyone wants to study when they're on the mountaintop, not when they're in the grave. David says, teach me my end. Which is probably why his son Solomon, at the end of his life, wrote in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning, the funeral, than to go to a party, the house of rejoicing. For that is the end of all men, Ecclesiastes 7 verse 2. It's superior to go to a funeral than to go to a party. That is not the way the world thinks. But that's how David thought. He said to God, oh, teach me something. Teach me about my own funeral coming up. Why? Because I do have an end. My life is not very long. In fact, go on in verse 4. Teach me not only my end, but teach me the measure of my days. Let me know that my days have a certain number and then they're done. They're gone. You would be very wise if you looked at your age and then looked back through history at how many people died before your age. I'm going to give you a list of some of them just now. Your days are numbered. And even if you live to 80 years old, how long is that? How long is 80 years old? It is 960 months. Or it's 29,200 days. Or it's 700,000 hours. 700,000 hours? How many times do we let an hour go without doing one thing or thinking one thought for God? You say, well, there's 700,000. Those days are going to fly, those hours are going to fly by. 700,000 hours? How many have you spent already? Well, in one week, you spend 168. So how many is that in a year? 365 times 168. Can any of our math scholars do that quickly? Was that about 300,000? No, about 30,000? About 30,000 in a year? And those, those hours are passing by. How often do we give our moments to something and they're running by? Yesterday, while I was preparing the song service, Here and writing them out and printing them. I listened to a speech of a news commentator who gave this speech just a few days before Christmas. As far as I know, he's not converted. He's a popular news commentator in the US. And he was speaking at a political rally for young people. And when he walked out, he did not have a Bible, he walked out. And his speech started with, I want to talk to you today. Uh, It was somewhere toward the beginning. This wasn't his first words, but it was somewhere toward the beginning. I want to talk to you today about your death. You need to know that you're all going to die. And we have one political group. This is what he says. There's one political group who doesn't want you to think about that. 
And so you put off marriage and you put off having children and you put off starting your business and you put off all doing all these things. And what you should really do is sit at home. He's saying still that one political party talks this way. Stay at home, play video games or have some sports where your life is running by before your eyes. That wasn't a Christian who said that. That wasn't a Baptist preacher. He went on to say, so let me give you some advice. (laughs) Get married too young. Have kids before you're ready and have more than you can afford. Go try to get a job for which you're not qualified. And then he said, run to life as if it's a swimming pool and jump right in. Because your life is going to be gone before you know it. Maybe those words need to be balanced, but let's put those on one side and say he at least understood this and he didn't even use the Bible. He at least understood what David was saying. Our life is running. Look at verse 4. There's a third phrase that tells us this. Lord, teach me my end. Lord, help me to count my days. And what's the third phrase that shows us our life is very short? What is it? Fleeting. Let's pause and look at that Hebrew word for a moment. If you have the King James, it says frail. If you have the New American Standard, it says transient. If you look up that word in a Hebrew lexicon, do you know what's going to say these? Let me, let me give you the words that it says in Hebrew lexicon. Flabby. What is flabby? Not very strong. Weak, frail, ceasing, that means coming to an end. Those words are taken directly from Jacinius's Hebrew lexicon for that Hebrew term. If you look through the Bible at other places this Hebrew word is used, this word is used when God tells Israel to stop it. He says, you need to stop all that you're doing. The point there, the root idea is, It's coming to an end. Oh Lord, let me know that my days are ending. They're passing very quickly. They are a river and you can't get the water back once it's gone. It's gone and it's gone forever. Kids, you think your life is going to last a long time. You don't even think about the end. Your life is going to be over before you know it. If you live a long time, you go, you've already finished what? Is it 20% of your life? If you go to 75, you've already finished 20%. You're well into it, man. Many of us have already finished 50%. Our life is going to go in a moment's time. Alexander McLaren, the great English preacher who lived at the same time as Charles Spurgeon said, What is man? A drop of water can kill him. Have you ever pondered that? You men who think you're so strong. Yesterday while while I was evangelizing in Valdesia, behind me there was a TV playing. And on the TV were these men with very large biceps. And they were showing off on the TV right behind where I was talking. And I had this verse in my mind. You men who think you're so strong, if a child coughs in your face, you can get the virus and die. We are a weak Frail, flabby, passing, fleeting, transient people. 
There is not much strength in us. And that's what this psalm teaches. Look at verse 5. It's amazing. Look at verse 5. Behold, you have made my days like what? Few. Few like, the, like a hand's breadth. Does the ESV have hand's breadth in verse 5? Yes. There it is. My days could be measured. Take your hand like that. Hold your hand up. You know, they do this in the charismatic churches. They say, hold your hands up. Talk to your neighbor. Put your hand up right there. That's your life. That's it. Verse 5 says your life's that that long. You think, well, but I've got more. No, you don't. It's that. And we have someone here who's over 70 who can tell us how fast it goes. You can remember when you were just a little girl. You can remember when you was a clean doctor key. And your life is running. It's gone. What are we going to do now? Keep going in verse 5. My lifetime is what in your sight? My lifetime is nothing. It's not a thing. Take that word nothing apart. It's no thing. It is not a thing. It does not. It has no substance. That's me in front of God. That might cure a lot of pride in some young men. When you kick a ball, a piece of rubber, you swing your foot at a piece of rubber, and then you raise your hands in the air so that everyone will know that you are something in direct contradiction to God who says, you're actually nothing. No, you don't understand. I swung my foot and I kicked a piece of rubber. No, you don't understand. You're nothing. This is the constant message of the Bible. 1 Corinthians 3, 6. He who plows, he who waters are nothing. That means the pastors, they're nothing in God's sight. They are nothing in comparison to all of history. But keep going in verse 5. Every man at his best is a mere breath. Do you see that in verse 5? The ESV unexplicably, inexplicably does not have the words at his best. There is a Hebrew word there and it should be in there. If you have the NASB or the King James or the New King James or even the New Living Translation, you have those words. But the ESV, sadly, takes those words at his best. Every man at his peak is what? What in verse 5? No, no, no. In verse 5, what is it? Just a vapor, some smoke, a breath. You at your peak of strength, young man who played for the Blue Bulls. Young woman who is so beautiful and in the... the, the uh, Height of your physical beauty. Oh man who's written 20 books. What are you? You're just a breath. You can pass away like that. How many godly men have passed away as a mere breath? Verse 11 says it again. It's just a mere breath. Psalm 78 verse 39 says man is a wind. Psalm 103 verse 14 says, man is dust. James 4 verse 14 says, man is a vapor, smoke. Isaiah 40 verse 7 says, man is grass that appears for a moment and passes away. And didn't we just sing that this morning? Immortal, invisible, God only wise. But men are like grass. They pass away. We're going to be gone. Before you know it, you're gone. Have you never known a child who died? 
Oh, but children can't die. Before this comfortable age in which you were born, the passing of the 1900s, the infant mortality rate was very high in countries all around the world. When women had babies, there was a high chance their baby would die and a significant possibility that they would die. Have you not known of a strong man or of an adult who died? A man like Greg Bonson, who at 55 was a godly Presbyterian pastor in America. He passed away, I believe, in 1995 after he'd written several, several theological works. Why did he die? How did he die? Interestingly enough, Greg Bonson said just before he died that he thanks God he just went to the doctors and his cancer was in complete remission. He should be healthy for many years. And then that godly man died. Have you ever known of a man who could withstand the passing of the, of the earth around the sun 100 times? There's a few, but not many. And if they can make it around the, the sun 100 times, how is their body then? No one can make it around the sun 200 times. Not even 110 times. We're so weak and frail. Now let me ask you, how many gifted men died as babies and we never knew that they were gifted? Mothers, did you have a miscarriage? What would that child have been like? My mother had five miscarriages. Who else would have been there? My point behind this is to try to get a perspective on our life from all of history to step back and look at life from a divine perspective. Count up the generations from today until Jesus. If you count a generation at 30 years, 30 years, that means maybe someone could live through two or even three generations. 70 generations ago, Jesus was on the earth. If a generation is 30 years long. You say, well, that's not very many, right? That's the point. Not long ago, 6,000 years ago, Adam and Eve were on the earth. You say, how many times, how much is that? Well, look back over the world and see the billions and billions of people and realize they're all passing and they're all forgotten. Do you even know the names of the richest men in the world from some time ago? Let me give you a few of these names. Do you know who Stephen Gerard is? He was the richest man in the world in 1820. Do you know John Jacob Astor? He was the richest man in the world after Gerard died at 56 years old. 56. And this man was worth hundreds of billions of dollars. At least that's what the website said. I'm sorry, that's Nathan Rothschild in 1830. He's worth 400 billion. He dies at 56. Stephen Gerard comes after him. Then John Jacob Astor. Then J. Paul Getty. Do you know any of these men? Have you ever heard of Yoshiaki Tsutsumi? He was a Japanese businessman in the 1980s. The richest man in the world. How's that wealth helping you now, Mr. Tsutsumi? We don't even know who they were. A man born while you were alive. A man living. He was the top of all the men alive in the world. You don't even know his name, and he was alive. He was the king. 
Well, you were, some of you were alive. Most of you were alive in the 1980s. Maybe you know the name Bill Gates. You know that name? If Jesus does not come back, no one will know him in 50 years. Oh, he's, he thinks he's the king now. Governments even listen to what he says now. No one will remember him. <clears throat> Have you ever heard of Jim Elliott? Or David Brainerd? Or Robert Murray McShane? Or William Borden? Or John Urquhart? Each of these men died before they were 30, and they were some of the most godly and gifted missionaries the world has ever seen. Each of those men had given his life to be a missionary and was serving as a missionary. Or in the case of John Urquhart, who was only 19, one of the most gifted young men in Scotland, and God took him at 19. Don't think just because you have some gifts, you're going to live long. You better use today to serve the Lord Jesus. These men... Many of us know them because we are believers. The world doesn't know who Robert Murray McShane is. Have you ever heard of Hugh Binning? Hugh Binning, before he was 14 years old in Scotland in 1630. Before he was 14, he had mastered Latin and Greek. And more than that, he was so mature spiritually that pastors commonly said, I learned how to be a spiritual Christian from that 14-year-old boy. At 18 years old, Hugh Binning became the professor of philosophy at the Glasgow College in Scotland. That's a prestigious college. He's 18 as the professor. But he didn't live past 26 years old. Well, you say, he's so godly. He's such a gift. God's going to preserve him and use him. No. He's so godly, God wanted him in heaven. Our lives are passing. Have you ever heard of Adiodatus? Adiodatus, I just learned about him this week. He died just after his 15th birthday. Just after he was baptized and converted. Adiodatus was called one of the most gifted men. And he was called one of the most gifted by one of the most famous men who's ever lived in the history of the world. Augustine. Augustine in his book Confessions writes that his son Adiodatus. Augustine writes, he would easily surpass me. He has more Mental power than I do. At 15 years old, Augustine's son helped him write his book. If you can help Augustine write books, you're pretty clever. Augustine's books have lived 1,600 years. And his son at 15 helps him write one of his books. And Augustine says, he's got more gifts than me. And he goes on to say, but don't think that I had anything to do with this. The only thing I gave my son was the sin That made his salvation necessary. But God said, Adeodatus needs to die just after his 15th birthday. Our lives are particularly short, and we think they are long. We have this idea that they are long and they are going to endure and go on, but in reality, our lives are very short. So then that might bring a question to your mind. You might think to yourself, Does that mean that my life is unimportant? 
Is that what verse 4 is saying? Because it says in there, you're nothing, verse 5. Verse 4, show me my end. Show me how few days I have. Show me that I'm weak and flabby. Show that I'm passing and going to be gone. I'm just a vapor. I'm smoke. I'm grass. Is there nothing valuable about me? If my lifetime is as nothing before God, then how can my life have any importance? Well, before I answer that, let me tell you this. That perspective was the mistake that Jesus corrected about three days before he was killed. Go in your Bibles to the New Testament, Matthew 25. Let's look at Matthew 25, verse 24. Oh, my life doesn't matter. I guess I'm just going to have a pity party. I can't do anything. Matthew 25. It holds the story of the three stewards. The one who's given five talents. The one is given two talents. And the one is given one talent. Look at verse 24. Matthew 25, verse 24. Then the one who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew that you were a hard man, reaping where you had not sown and gathering where you had not strawn. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the earth. Behold, here is the talent that is yours. Verse 26, his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reaped where I had not sown and I gathered where I had not planted. You ought therefore to have put my money to the usurers. And then at the least when I came, I should have received my own with interest. Verse 28. Take therefore the talent from him. Give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will be given and he will have more. But for him who has not, it will be taken away even that which he has. And cast the unprofitable servant. Where? Into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let me bring this to your attention. The slave was given a small gift. And his sin in verses 24 and 25 was to think, my small gift is actually no gift. There's a great difference between something small and nothing. God did give a gift to that man. He gave him one talent. Yes, but mine is nothing like his. It's something, isn't it? It's grace from God, isn't it? Yes, but I don't have all that he has. I can't memorize verses like that one. I can't read like him. I can't preach like him. I'm just not strong like her. Do you have anything? Jehovah said to Moses, what is in your hand? Well, all I've got is a stick. Throw it down before me and it became a snake. But what was the question Jehovah asked? What is in your hand? This foolish man, he looked and said, I've just got this little thing, so it's nothing. Let me just sit here and play video games while it rots under my bed. Look at verse 26. What does the master call this man? Verse 26. The Lord answered and said, Well, it's just a small thing anyway. It was only one talent that you wasted. Oh well, better luck next time. Is that what he says? What two words describe this man in verse 26? Wicked and lazy. 
you wicked, lazy man, because you looked at the grace you were given and said, it's not as much as hers. What, you gave her so much, and she can't even be a preacher. I mean, why'd you give it all to her? You talk that way, and God calls you wicked and lazy. Or what about you, ladies? Some of you are very gifted. And you say, well, but I can't use my gift. I can't do that job. I can't be a pastor. So God has an answer for that. Wicked and lazy. Look at verse 27. He should have done something, but what was his sin? He did nothing. Verses 28 and 29. So the little grace that was given to him was removed and given to the man who had wisely used the grace that he was given. And his end is in hell. A man who discounts his life. A man who says, well then, if my life is so short and small, then I guess there's nothing to it. I guess I'll just live. I guess I'll live in depression. I'll live in discouragement. I can't do anything with my life. If you give in to discouragement or depression, God says, this fool, who because of his Foolish view on life did nothing. His end was in hell. As are serious responses. Okay, but then then you want to ask, then how can something so small be valuable? Imagine your life, which is just one life of billions of lives. And imagine the hundreds and millions of people who have died at childbirth, died in the womb, or been murdered in abortion. Imagine all the children who've died before they were 10 years old. Maybe there were some amazing piano players. Maybe the next Charles Spurgeon. Maybe some man who could have broken the world record. Maybe a brilliant businessman. Maybe a good politician, an honest politician. And they were all died. How can something so small, like my one soul, be important? That's really what the first question was asking. And that's an important question. How is it that your life is important if I've been telling you the whole time you're a breath, you're passing, you're just going by, you're grass, you're wind. We're we're so small. We are important in ways that we do not think are important. And we are unimportant in the ways that we think we are important. And this is the great problem with the prosperity gospel. They love to preach on this. Listen to this theme. They love to talk about your position in Christ. But what they mean by that is they want to take the things that are unimportant and pretend that those things are the important things that make up your position in Christ. So they want to say your job, your talent, your comfort, the way you feel. They want to take those things and pretend like those are the important parts of your position in Christ. Those things have nothing to do with your position in Christ. The important things are the things that are neglected by the world. Like what? Well, before I tell you, let me remind you that sin always twists our mind. That's the great danger. Sin is changing our mind. Sin is twisting our mind and making you think the important things are unimportant and the unimportant things are really valuable. Sin so confuses your mind that you look up on the mountain and you see the clouds that pass there in front of Honglip and you're so confused and blinded, you think the clouds are the rock. 
We look out and we see some grass and we think it's a diamond. No, go look closer at it. Remember, how does Isaiah 40 verse 7 call us? It, it says we're just grass that withers and passes away. But there is a diamond in there. What is that diamond? There is a rock in there. What is the rock? <clears throat> there is great value in man. What is it? Look at verse, uh, I'm sorry, go back to Psalm 39. Back to Psalm 39. I hope you didn't close your Bible there. Look at Psalm 39 verse 7. Psalm 39 verse 7. And now, Lord, what do I wait for? What's the answer in verse 7? Now, Lord, what do I wait for? What's his answer? We, among all God's creation, can hope in God. Dogs can't do it. Grass can't do it. Trees can't do it. And the terrible sin of apartheid or racism is to hint or imply that black people can't do it. We alone can do this. God has made you so that you can hope in God. This is why we must not murder babies because those babies have the ability to hope in God. They have some kind of soul inside them that if it is cultivated and if it is blessed with the grace of God and if we teach it the Bible, that baby can hope in God. This is why we will never support euthanasia Euthanasia is the murder of old people. We will never support euthanasia because old people, oh, what can they do? He's 84. He can't even walk nicely. He can't do this. He can't do that. He's so old. That 84-year-old man can hope in God. Well, that's not very valuable in your eyes and in the eyes of the world. But in the eyes of God, it's not only valuable, it's the only value. That's the place for amen. The only value in the world is that we would hope in God. That's the fight. That is the goal of every single preacher who loves Christ and stands up to faithfully teach the Bible. My goal when I preach is that when you're done, your heart, your mind, your soul, all of your anticipation would be broken. All the cords that tie your anticipation to this earth and to money and to job and to house, that I would be cutting those cords one at a time and helping you throw your rope up into heaven and tie your heart to heaven so that you will hope in God. If I can help you hope in God, we have done then the one important thing that you were made for. That's why you were made. Your life is passing. It's nothing. It's a vapor. It's grass. But even this grass has been given something that birds and beasts and cows and rocks aren't given. They're given something that Lucifer was not given. You can hope in God. Angels don't have that power. First Peter tells us they look up to, to men and wonder what's happening. Ephesians 3 verse 10 says, when the church gathers together and when the church acts in accordance with the Bible, the Bible says in Ephesians 3.10 that the angels gather around like they're sitting in a stadium and are looking down in the church. And the main event is not a sporting event. It's not a boxing ring. The main event is not a music star. The main event is Christians like you gathering together, singing, and when you are singing, 
hoping in God or praying. And when you're praying, you're not thinking about the day. You're not thinking about what happened in the past. You're thinking about God. And the angels are watching that. Oh, there's a lot happening at church. We can't just cancel it. Angels are waiting to gather. When you don't gather, you disappoint the angels. Well, if I don't come to church, I'm busy. You're too busy to hope in God in front of angels like Gabriel and Michael and thousands upon thousands of others who watch? No, the truth is you're not too busy. But what happened is you don't have ropes tied up there yet. Your ropes are still tied to everything on this earth. You need to get under the sound of godly preaching to just take those scissors and start cutting the ropes and start tying. And that's why you've got to read your Bibles. Every time we read our Bible, rightly read, we're tying another rope up to heaven, up to things that matter, those things that are most important. Men alone can be forgiven. Chapter 39, verse 8. Look there. Deliver me from what? Does it say from all my poverty? Does it say from all my hardship? Does it say from all my difficulties? It's deliverance from what in verse 8? My transgressions, not just sin, but my particular sin. She's got hers, he's got his, he's got his. I don't have to worry about that. I have to worry about whose transgressions. Fix me of mine and then I will hope in God. Men alone can be united to Christ. No angel, however glorious, can ever be united to Christ. Has it ever struck you that angels, angels, though they are amazingly glorious... Angels, if they appeared to us right now, would be so terrifying that we would fall on the ground. Some of us might pass out. But angels will never be united to Christ because they were not included in the covenant of redemption. Jesus never came to die for angels. He came to die for sinful people. Only men can be united to Christ. And for all eternity, those amazing beings who are greater and stronger than you, who are more terrifying than you, whose eyes are like lightning, whose bodies pulse with fire, they will be watching as you are united to Christ. There is something very glorious that you can do. Only men can bear the image of God. Only men can form the church as living stones. Men have a role that only they can perform. They must honor God by faith and not by sight. Because that is the role that God has given them. God has made a rock to do a certain job. To picture him. God has made a song to do a certain job. God has made angels to do a certain thing. God has made the stars to do a certain thing. But God has made men to do something that only they can do. I cannot do the job of a rock. I cannot do the job of an angel. I can only do my job. And my job is to hope in God. To think much of his son. To be bound up in his son. To be united to him. Nothing else can do that. But you can with your few days that are just like a cloud. Like a vapor. Like a smoke. With your few days that are like grass. The world says that our value is in our power and our authority and our money. And so listen to these words in Luke 22. Jesus said to the disciples, this is as they're walking from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus knows 
in 12 hours, they're going to kill me. And 12 hours before they kill him, the disciples are fighting over who's going to be the greatest. And Jesus says, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who have authority over them are called the benefactors. But it is not this way with you. The one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest. And the leader must be like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. The night before he dies, Jesus says to the disciples, everything the world teaches you, it's backward. When the world says the great one is the one who sits on the throne, I say the great one is the one who washes the feet. When the world says the great one is the one who has that bank card that never ends, I'm the one who says the bank card, the the one who wins is the one who's poor in spirit. When the world says the one who wins is the one who's old and mature and powerful, I say, unless you be converted and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What you learn from the world, you need to turn exactly backward in order to get any truth from it. The message of today is simply this. We are all much smaller than we realize. And it is very rare to see this. Most men do not see how small they are. Most men do not see how short life is. Most men do not understand this because they think too much of them. They think too much of themselves. Most men think I would do a pretty good job running the world, don't they? Let me give you three reasons why men think that. Men do not know how small they are because, number one, the visible world exercises a great power over the eyes of men. The visible world. A new, what does a new Bucky do to you? When you see someone driving a new car, what does it do to you? Have you seen that guy here, Lou Chicardo, who has the new Mustang, Ford Mustang? Have you seen that guy? I've seen him twice now. What happens to you when you see it? Your head turns. And that's exactly why he paid half a million rand. He paid a half a million rand so that you would turn your head. Because that turning of the head has so much power to most men. The visible world exercises a great power over men's mind. Here's the second reason why men do not know that they are small. Men don't know how small they are because of this. And it's happening in our schools. And parents, if you send your children to the public schools, you must privately fix this problem. History is neglected. I gave you today, what, half a dozen examples from history? Maybe a dozen examples from history? And I had to leave many examples out. When you read history, there is an amazing humiliation that happens. You realize you're actually not very great. Even you think, well, but I'm good at this one area. Then you read history and you realize that actually people are much better than me. Read history to realize how many millions of people lived and died in China better than me or you. How many millions of people lived and died in India. How many millions of people died on the islands of the world or in South America or North America or in Africa or North Africa. History is neglected to our great detriment Let us make sure that our children have that error corrected. History is more valuable than math. Yes, some basic arithmetic is needed so that you know how to add 20 and 20 rand together. 
But far more important than math is to recognize the way the world turns and how the world runs and what the heart of man is like and how that repeats itself over and over. Reason number three, men do not know how small they are because these thoughts are distasteful to us in our natural state. We do not want to think of how small we are. No one wants to think that. We hate the idea that we're small. We think very much of our own greatness. So let me today give you, let me give you, if I can, I'm going to have to go so quickly. I, I'm cutting here, but let me, let me close with six ways that you can live in light of how short life is. Six ways that you can live in light of how short life is. Number one, do not waste a single minute. Ephesians 5.16 says, redeem the time because the days are evil. The one gift that you are given that you can never replace is time. Let your money be lost, you can make more. Let your health be lost, you can regain that in general. You cannot ever in any way under any circumstance get a second back once it's lost. You cannot get the minutes back. They are precious. They are diamonds. How many unbelievers on their deathbed would say, I would give anything for more time? The poem, not the poem, the play during Shakespeare's life, uh, Dr. Faustus. Dr. Faustus is the story of a man who sold his soul to a devil so that he could live for 20 years in every kind of power and glory on the earth. And at 20 years, the devil told him up front, at this date, in 20 years' time, at midnight, your soul will be mine and you will be lost for all eternity. And as the play ends, it ends with Dr. Faustus at the peak of glory and honor in the world. He has all the money and power that you can get in the world. And as the play ends, he is cursing out, calling out for the stars to stop their courses, for the earth not to go around the sun anymore, to stop, stop, don't let the sun go down anymore. Don't let the shadow move, don't let the clock move. Stop the seconds. And the demon mocks him, Mephistopheles mocks him and says, the clock can't be stopped. And the play ends as the clock strikes midnight. You can't change the time. Don't waste it. Redeem the time. We now know, uh, Romans 13 verse 11, knowing that the, it is now high time that we awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. We've got to wake up. That's why our Lord said in, Matthew, in John 9 verse 4, the night comes when no man can work. So I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. We're going out to Valdesia today to evangelize. Yes, but it's rainy. I don't care. The night is coming. Yesterday I evangelized three unconverted people who said they're coming today. Uh, direction number two. How can you live? What should you do? If you have such a short life, number two, come quickly to a right relationship with God. Come quickly to a right relationship with God. Why are you waiting? Some of you have listened for months to the Bible and you still wait. Well, I'll come later. I'll come next year. A few weeks ago, 
A few weeks ago, someone told me at church, I think in two months I'm ready to be a Christian. Why wait two months? What are you waiting for? Time is not on your side. Come quickly to a right relationship with God. Number three, how should you live? Number three, continually recalibrate the scales of your heart. Recalibrate. That means change the settings. Continually change the settings on your heart by removing the weight and value and respect from everything connected with the world and adding the weight and the value and respect to everything connected to Jesus Christ. How is it that you can live wisely? Change your scales because every single day your scales are off. Let me give you an example from John Piper. John Piper said, I need help every day so that I don't forget the unreached people. He's exactly right. He went on to say, I am wired in my brain to forget the unreached people of the world. And you are too. How many times this week did you pray for unreached people who don't have a Bible and who have no church? You forgot. I forgot. Because we need to recalibrate our mind. How many times this week did you think about how much money is in your bank? We need to recalibrate every day. Spurgeon said, see to it that every morning you bless the day by giving one thought to the person of Jesus Christ. You need to recalibrate your mind every day because your machinery wakes up broken. And it can only be fixed when you go into your heart with the power of the Spirit and change your mind and readjust the values. Number four, how should you live? Labor with all your might to be sure Of your soul's salvation. Labor with all your might. To be sure of your soul's salvation. Richard Baxter said. The best of men. Do too little. He meant the very best men. Should be doing more to ensure. That their names are written in heaven. And that they are truly born again. And that they have the fruits of the spirit. Showing all around them. The best of men should do this. But most men do too little. Number five. How should you live? Number five. Lead your wife and children to Christ at all costs. And when I say at all costs, that is not hyperbole. That's not exaggeration. At all costs, lose your job, go to jail, lose your comfort, lose your health, but don't lose your wife and kids. Noah only took his family on the ark. And in the book of Ezekiel, he's called the greatest of the three greatest Noah's in the group because he saved his wife and kids. Don't lose your family. Don't expect the pastor to win your family. You win your family. Number six. What can you do? How should you live if your life is so short? Devote yourself to a godly church. Devote yourself to a godly church. Do everything you can to make sure that church flourishes. Evangelize for that church. Strengthen that church. Pray for that church. Pray constantly for the pastor. Pray for conversions and revival. Ask people in the church, what can I do to serve you? Ask the pastor or the elders, what can I do to serve the church? Devote yourself to a godly church. Because when you are in heaven, you will never say, I served the church too much. It's not possible. 
Jesus didn't say that at the end of his life, and he gave every drop of blood. You will not give every one of your minutes to, the, uh, to your family and to the church and to Christ and to God and get to heaven and say, I wish I would have